Miriam here with Meta and Matt and Derek. We're talking about the promise of baptism today, which is somewhat of a cultural institution that people are familiar with, um, but also I think something that can be a little confusing, um, even for people who attend church and for whom this is a regular practice or something they see every couple of weeks or a few times a year. Um, it's weird. You, you say some words is very ritualistic, and um, I think it deserves some unpacking. You guys have baptized your kids or had your kids baptized. Uh, tell me a little bit about that. Uh, one, one of the things that I think about is um, we baptize a lot of kids at St. Andrew. We've got a lot of young families. We're in a suburb that's full of um, people moving into the city because there's parks and all of those things. Um, uh and there's a lot of shame around baptism um, for parents, especially um, younger parents, um, because maybe they delayed it or maybe they forgot. Like we do some baptisms of um, sixth graders and, and seventh graders and middle schoolers. One of my favorite things is to sh- share with them the story of my baptism, which was when I was 13. Um, and uh, that's different in the Lutheran church anyway, because we baptize mostly babies. Um, but what I talk to them about is the memory uh, of walking up to the pastor and asking uh, if I could get baptized. And just this last um, week I had, or this last year, I had a kindergartner come up to me, uh, and I was, I had my vestments on, and she, she grabbed me, and she tugged on my, on my robe, and she said, Pastor Matthew, Pastor Matthew, I want to get baptized, um, and then she was insistent that I was the one who would do the baptism, uh, and it's just, it's a gift, uh, to be able to, um, uh, experience those promises, um, not only with my own kids, which which would bring me to tears, but but with other people's kids, I think is uh, is just as much of a gift for me. At the church where I serve as a pastor, um, a couple weeks ago, we did something called adult confirmation, and confirmation is in the Lutheran Church um, when teenagers, usually they're eleven, twelve, thirteen, sort of look at the promises they made in their baptism and reaffirm those for themselves. So often in the Lutheran church, you're baptized as a baby, but then when you're um, in your early teens, you sort of reaffirm those promises for yourself now that you can understand them. Um, and we offered this to adults because there are adults in our con- in our congregation who have never um, done this process of confirmation or people who kind of wanted to revisit it and, and reconfirm their faith. And one of the people who took the confirmation class um, throughout it kind of said, oh, wait, I've actually never been baptized. So I need to do that first so that then I can confirm these things that these promises that I, I want to make. So what we did was there are two services at my church. Um, and at the early service, he was baptized. And at the late service, he was confirmed. Um, so now he gets to live with these promises that he kind of made simultaneously all at the same time and, and work to reconfirm them over and over again, which I think is really cool. Parenthood really rocked me. A great form of birth control is just listening to me talk about how I burst into a million pieces, uh, and was terrible at being a mother of a newborn (laughs) when Jasper was born. Um, it wrecked me. Parenthood kind of tore me open with postpartum anxiety and just a fear of not doing it right and feeling really lonely in the hours and ounces of living with this tiny person who never seemed satisfied and I didn't know what he needed. 
And so when we invited our friends over for dinner to ask them if they would be as godparents, Jasper was only a few weeks old. And I remember feeling like the floor would cave in if they said no. Because I, I cannot imagine trying to do this without more help, without a wider village, without more family and friends who promise to help us carry this little person with love because I'm doing a really mediocre job of it. Um, and, I, and I want all the help I can get. And I want people who will lean in when I'm just barely here. And when they said yes and made that promise to us that evening, weeks and weeks before he was baptized, um, that was like my own baptism, realizing like, oh, their love and their grace and their promises are for me too. And we're going to do this all together. And recently, uh, maybe a year ago, uh, I was saying something about his godparents, who are my dear friends. And my son said, Mom, sometimes I feel bad for you because they're just your friends, but they're my godparents. <laughs> and I thought, mission accomplished. Like, this kid gets that these people are his and he is theirs. And there is a bigger family and more love because of this strange sacrament. I wanted to talk more with some people who know things about baptism and who I knew would help decode some of this sort of traditional churchy language that we often use around this sacrament. A sacrament is basically an ordinary thing that becomes holy, and sacraments have been described as visible signs of invisible grace. So the Catholic Church has decided that there are seven sacraments, and Protestant churches like Lutherans and Presbyterians and Episcopalians and others have decided that there are two sacraments, communion and baptism. So in the church, baptism is kind of a big deal. And it's a promise, a promise from God to a human, or rather a visible sign of a promise that has already been made, that this human is loved, no matter what they do, that they're loved unconditionally. And it's a promise from parents and godparents and families and a whole community to that human too, that they'll also show this person reflections of that love, that they'll help shape their faith and the way they live in the world. The people I sat down to talk with about this promise are three friends of mine, John Rody Schwain, Peter Carlson Schatower, and Joel Berglund. They're all three pastors at different churches, and they're all Lutheran like me, so that informed the way we talked about baptism together. Peter and Joel are godfathers to John's daughter, and I knew they all had thoughtful things to say about the promises that are made in baptism, both theologically and from their personal points of view. Here's our conversation. So hmm. two of you, Joel and Peter, are godparents to the child of John. Hmm. That's right. So explain a little bit, maybe first before we talk about what that means theologically and, and, you know, ethically and emotionally to all of you. <laughs> Let's talk about the logistics of it. So yeah. maybe John, talk about um, asking Peter and Joel mm. to be godparents to Lydia, your daughter. Maybe tell us a little bit about Lydia first and then. I'll tell yeah. you, I'm going to tell you about Lydia. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have a choice. She's my daughter. She's 15 months old now. 
she's joyful and fun and cute. I think cute. I think so too. Yeah, we can all agree on that. She's adorable. Yeah. And yeah, she came into this world and we wanted to have her baptized. And when we made the decision to have her baptized, we were looking forward to gathering a community around her. And so then we were kind of approaching the godparent question as, you know, who from our community do we know is going to be a part of her life? Who do we in some ways want to bind to her in a way, whether or not they want to be? Um, because but we, like we wanted. Yeah, it was, <laughs> of course, you wanted to be. But it was our saying kind of, we expect this actually. Mm-hmm. And you are, you know, invited into a particular way of loving and praying for and caring for this person as they grow, come what may. I, th- I think the invitation came by email, didn't it? Yeah, it did. And, oh. uh, I, it was, I, I was, I'm thinking about the, the come what may part of things, because for me, that is a really powerful aspect of this relationship. Um, and a really powerful aspect. I mean, we're approaching the year, uh, anniversary of Lydia's baptism and I was just thinking about that uh, as we were coming together to have this conversation and uh, it made me think about how much more I know Lydia now than I did a year ago Uh, partly because we've had another year and partly because she is at an age where uh, developmental uh, gains are so fast that mm. she is revealing uh, more and more of who she is mm. uh, in ways that we understand mm-hmm. uh, every day. And that, but that these are promises I made to Lydia and to God and to uh, a community before I knew these things. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I liked Lydia a year ago, uh, of course. Um, and Luckily, I like her even more now, um, but but that these promises are not contingent upon how I feel about mm-hmm. Lydia, um, either in a sort of big sense or in any one given moment. And I think for me, that come what may, that's uh, a huge power of this relationship is mm. that I made these promises way before I mm. knew uh, who Lydia is going to be mm-hmm. or how I'm going to feel about Lydia. Ditto. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So what was the, Mm. what was the proposal like? Oh. Oh, it came over email. The godparent proposal. The godparent proposal. I think I expected someone to go on a knee, but that didn't happen. (laughs) No, the subject was Los Padrinos. And I honestly (laughs) thought you were inviting me out to like a Mexican restaurant (laughs) that I hadn't heard of yet, but it was like Godfathers. Godfathers. Yeah. And, um, just this really lovely crafted, um, invitation from you and your wife about, um, the joy you had in Lydia and the, how you wanted to surround her, um, with love and, and, and this particular kind of, um, invitation into that was really, uh, well thought out and intentional. Mm-hmm. And they said yes. <laughs> <laughs> there was some questions since we both worked at churches. That's true. We uh, had to take vacation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which obviously... <laughs> wham, wham. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I'm just saying that question was yeah, there. <laughs> no, it was. Yeah. 
I I also think about uh, you know the powerful moment of being present for Lydia's baptism uh, is that in that moment uh, the the words that Lydia heard uh, when she was baptized are you belong mm-hmm. you know you are loved you are enough I created you um, that's God speaking there <laughs> um, and and I love you and and those are and I think if over the course of Lydia's life or over the course of the the time of life that Lydia and I are both here, that I can remind her that uh, one of the first major things that happened in her life was that uh, her friends got together mm-hmm. uh, around some water and said, whatever happens, come what may, uh, you are loved uh, by God and by us. Uh, I think that, yeah, that that's enough, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Tell the story of her baptism. What was it like? Oh. <laughs> well, I made the decision to baptize her as a pastor and as her dad. And that was complicated. And I'm not sure whether I do it again that way, should we ever have another child. Um, however, Lydia was a member of my congregation that I serve, and so in that role as pastor, I figure I can baptize. But I made the decision, kind of counter to the normal practice of my congregation, to bring an enormous bowl out there yes. and fill it with water. And we stripped her naked, and we plunged her in, and she did not like it. Um, <laughs> and, and people watched and thought it was like adorable, beautiful, cute, like shocking for her. I think people were like, I bet that's cold water. It was cold water. Um, so I don't know. I thought it through. I was like, you know, if we're going to, if we're going to confer a blessing, if we're going to somehow try to express something of abundance and the abundance, especially of God's love and God's promise, uh, let's just have a lot of water, you know, and let's let her cry and let's, you know, just make it a thing. And, we, you know, I think it was a good thing. I remember yeah. baptizing her, and it was kind of an out-of-body experience. It was like I was watching myself do it as I was doing it because I love her so much, and she's such a mystery to me as a person, and yet I was trying to do this mysterious thing for her as a pastor, but also bear witness to it as a father and also stand alongside my best friends who were there, and it was just a lot of different loves coming together at once. Yeah, I think that is what I remember about the day is I, you know, a lot of times in my own theology, I'm like, baptism is death, you know? You (laughs) die to sin, and, you know, it's, like, really weird, violent for me, like, uh, that kind of thing. But, like, that day, it was just, like, joy, love, Life is beautiful. What a gorgeous creation. Look at what God is doing. And just, yeah, layers of love just crashing right on top of each other. Mm -hmm. And I think that is instructive to me Mm -hmm. about what I say I believe about baptism, Mm -hmm. right? And and what my heart um, and and whole being Mm. did in witnessing um, the baptism of Lydia. 
Mm-hmm. It's helpful, Joel, for me, for you to bring up like baptism is death. Because I think my uh, sort of knee jerk is often to go to baptism is about belonging. It's about initiation into a community, which it is. And those are really important things. But I think uh, there are lots of ways we can do that. Um, and there is something uh, unique uh, about baptism. And that is that what we say is that this is something that binds us to a death, a death, uh, Jesus' death, that uh, uh, that then allows us to rise uh, as Christ rose. And uh, I think that's a a powerful image and an aspect of baptism that uh, I will bring up now and spend a lot of time reflecting on, uh, which is that it's also a moment when we remember that Lydia is going to die. Um, and, um, and that we believe something more than uh, uh, just death is going to come out of that. If you visited a Lutheran church anyway, which is what we're all a part of, um, and saw a, a baptismal liturgy, there'd be, I think, maybe some kind of creepy stuff if it was the yeah. first time that you had ever experienced it. So there's a part of this baptismal liturgy um. that we do in the Lutheran church where um, we ask people to renounce things, and one of those things is the devil. Yep. Yeah. And um, it's pretty intense, mm, I think. Yeah. And, and it's because most of the people who are doing that are... Um, sponsors who may or may not have ever mm. set foot in this church. Yeah. <laughs> um, I always wonder about what they what they think when they have to renounce the devil. Um, but like you all are saying, there there is some darkness to this this promise and and there's a naming of of darkness and evil and death uh, that happens. What what do you what are some of your reflections about that that piece of it, the renouncing of evil and what happens when we do that? Yeah, I, I've i actually grown more comfortable as a pastor with leading those renunciations. It used to freak me out, and it still kind of does, because it's like I just don't often talk about the devil in front of my people. <laughs> and now it's like, yeah, all these new people, and here's like, let's, here's a, a, you know, adorable, precious child of God. Let's just talk about the devil. But I think it is powerful as a community. We're about to say, here's who you are. Here's how you belong. Here is a truth that is uh, loving and merciful and wider than any comprehension of it. But, you know, we, and we can like, we can wade into those kind of mysterious waters as a community of faith. But we can also like say some pretty specific hell knows to some things, you know, like we are going to renounce things like mm. that are not welcome <laughs> into this love that we see. And they are all the things that we are intimately familiar with that keep us separate from loving each other, from including each other uh, as community each and every day. And so and we need to say the yeses, but we also need to say the noes because I think those form us as a people that can say, like, there are powers that hold dominion over us that make us not the people that we are created to be. And, like, get out of here, you know? Like, I guess, because what we're doing here has 
you know, those things, those powers have no place here. Like they are not welcome into what we are about to announce and enact together in these waters. Yeah. And I think you bring up, you know, the Lutheran church, which we're all part of. And in Lutheran theology, there's just this heavy emphasis on like sin and grace are just like co-mingling and everything. And it's all the water we swim in is murky and, you know, just (laughs) life is polluted, you know? And it just feels really good to say, we're done with that. This is a time when we can say yes mm. and mean it and and not let anything else get in the way and not have to doubt what is going on. And ritually, that's what we're doing mm-hmm. when we renounce the devil and sin and death is what you're saying. It's You do not have a place here. It's this ultimate trust that um, at the heart of everything, there is a God and God is being good to each one of us. Mm-hmm. And I, how can I not wish that for your daughter and for, for other people? But yeah, there were two other families there that morning with Lydia <laughs> and who knows if they've been back to church. And so it, they it, have. Okay. <laughs> but, but like at my church, yeah. we, we do that all the time. We baptize kids mm-hmm. and then we never mm-hmm. see them or the sponsors Again, and you do kind of wonder what this means mm. um, to those who aren't, you know, showing up to church for 40 to 60 hours a week, you know, <laughs> like all of us in this room. Yeah, yeah. One thing that I find powerful about the renunciations uh, and that I find powerful about uh, the Lutheran tradition is this focus on honestly naming the situation of the world. And I think that. Uh, that is, that is a tack I often take with families as a pastor, uh, as we are preparing for a baptism of their child when they come into my office and, uh, I have to, uh, teach them about baptism in, you know, an hour or less. And, um, you know, I always want to go through the service. And when we get to that part, I agree, John, that I, I do have some discomfort um, about saying, okay, you're going to renounce the devil and evil and the forces that defy God. Um, but I, I find that uh, one, one way I've, I've gone about thinking about that is to, is, and I don't know if this is like a moment of our time, but to say, you know, I think we can all honestly look at the world and admit that things aren't what we might want them to be. Um, that... Uh, when we look at the world, it looks like uh, evil or whatever we want to call it is winning a lot of the time. And uh, within our tradition, uh, we call that the devil, you know, and, and that's what we're saying no to. some of the conversations I've been having with people around promise, the theme of healing keeps coming up again and again, Mm -hmm. that promise and covenant are a vehicle for healing Mm -hmm. in light of baptism. Do you see that or how, and if you do, how, how do you see that? Yeah, I think I'm going to make it about me for a second, my own healing. Like I, to me, my experience of, 
either witnessing a baptism or being a part of one is healing because I think it heals me in the sense of wholeness or being restored to something heals me with like the church again, in a way. I mean, I belong to a church that has done untold violence uh, to people (laughs) through the ages and uh, continues to every day. And I pray that my daughter Lydia is not wounded by the church in the way that so many have been, but it's very possible that she will be at some point. Um, I know, you know, the church, not only my particular congregation, but congregations everywhere. It's just a messy, uh, hard, blessed thing to be a part of, and we're not as good as we like to believe that we are. And we just are honest about that. But in that moment of baptism, uh, it's almost like this is the church doing what it should be doing. And, you know, I think of people in churches the world over who might, like, in their hearts still be uh, bigoted against people who are uh, hold marginalized identities. And this child that they are making promises yep. to yep. may indeed, and in fact will, uh, you know, own some of those identities as they grow. And you are making a promise mm-hmm. <laughs> to this child to love them and pray for them come what may. And that needs to transform you. You know, I mean, I think mm. making promises to uh, to these beloved children before we know anything about them is saying what the church should always be saying, which is that this love of God, this overarching big promise that we are trying to like stand and represent is like the mission of this church, you know, is to like represent that to the world and and not uh, be be hateful towards one another, I guess. So, so are you saying you chose us as godfathers because I'm bisexual and Peter's gay? I mean, <laughs> I mean, I chose you because you're Joel and Peter, but yeah. I also am excited, excited for or like or pleased with the the pictures of like yeah. the, of creation and createdness that Lydia is going to have kind of at the center of her walk of faith, you know, like it's, she's not going to have to sit in a class and be told that LGBTQ folks are, are beloved in the image of God because she's going to be like, yeah, Joel and Peter, you know, yeah. like, you know, yeah. she's going to have people at the center of like what she even thinks it means to be a Christian that are going to have already changed her heart. And of course there are systems and there are forces that yeah. she will inevitably be a part of and we those that's what we have to renounce, you know, and right. and she will be, you know, participate in them in some way or another, but um but you will keep you're the main, you know, good news for for what this is for her, what it means for her. Mm-hmm. Well, and I know my personal obsession with baptism uh came about the time that I was coming out of the closet, Mm -hmm. that um, those were words I needed to hear as I was going through that process, which I experienced in love felt from friends. Mm -hmm. Um, And also knowing that whatever uh, a specific church might say to me about my sexuality, that there was a greater promise made to me. And uh, what we believe about God as we hear in Psalm 139 is that God knows exactly uh, who you are when God makes these promises. The only person present at Lydia's baptism who knew exactly who Lydia is and is going to be is God. And God 
accepted Lydia completely at the moment of Lydia's baptism. And God accepted me completely at the moment of my baptism, knowing full well uh, my sexual orientation. There's this phrase, there are no other people's children. And as I hear you all reflecting on, on the community of people that are going to hold Lydia in, in love throughout her life, that strikes me as, yeah, people are making promises to her mm. and they don't, they don't know her. And mm. they're, I mean, she's not your child and she's not the child mm. of anybody else that day who made those promises except for you, John, mm. but everybody made those promises. Mm. And that's something I'm curious about too, how you all think of this in, in context of Lydia's baptism and in terms of baptism in general. So in this liturgy that we all follow in our churches, um, we ask the parents to make promises, we ask the sponsors, the godparents to make promises, and then we ask the congregation mm -hmm. to make promises. Yeah. Um, what, what is that like as, as a parent and as godparents and then also as pastors to think about all of these hundreds of people making promises to your child mm. um, who you might see in passing every Sunday for a few years, for 10 years, for many years. You may have relationships with these mm. people that last Lydia's life, and you may never see some of them again if they you know, move away. So mm. what does that mean? What does that piece, the communal piece, mean to you all? Mm. One thing that I... Uh, really respect about how John and his wife Anna have thought about raising Lydia is that I remember a conversation we had either right before Lydia was born or right after Lydia was born and uh, I was living with John and Anna at the time and I made some comment like I know I'm getting in your way or uh, you know it must be hard to not just be able to be the three of you uh, at this new moment and um, what I remember John saying is that while, yes, uh, this relationship that you and Anna were having with this new child that um, had been made out of your love and was now a part of this uh, nuclear family uh, was really important and that it was important that the three of you get to know each other, that your hope for Lydia's life was that there were uh, adults all over the place that claimed her um, and and loved her and uh, had some stake in in her raising. And uh, that was certainly uh, helpful for me to hear as uh, someone living in the guest bedroom, but also um, not something I had thought about. I mean, I'd been so affected by uh, sort of in a Western or American view of um, what happens when we have children, um, that we sort of, we become this nuclear family that, uh, that suddenly has less uh, porous boundaries. Mm -hmm. uh, there's more of a distinction between uh, what's in and what's out, who's a part and who's not. And instead, what I was hearing from you is that your desire for your family was that there were sort of porous boundaries. Mm -hmm. um, and, yeah. Yeah, I think the other way of saying, like, a child belongs to everyone is like she belongs to no one <laughs> but <laughs> but God ultimately right and that's been a spiritual practice for me as a parent is just 
entrusting this lovely thing to the world, you know, and I entrust strangers to the care of my child every single day. Right. And, and, and ultimately she's not my child, you know, in like a possessive way. She's a beloved child of God created perfectly in the image of God. And I need to trust that like every part of me is like, hold on tight and watch her and keep her safe from strangers. And I mean, there's wisdom to those things, but, but, but also it's like, ultimately she's, she's not mine. I read this uh, little reflection recently by a, a guy who was talking about being a part of the congregation that was making promises to a baby in his congregation. And it was a, a family that they didn't really ever see come around and they brought their kid to be baptized and um, they'd made the promises. And a few weeks later, this child died and he went to the funeral and hardly anybody was at the funeral. And he said, Never in his life had he been so ashamed of the church. You know, we, we promised this, right? And nobody came to this funeral. Like, what were you doing? Like, what were you doing? <laughs> you know, and I, I think that is something that we need to wrestle with as a wider community too. Like, what does this mean? What does it look like? How are we, how are we putting some flesh on those, on those promises and putting some skin in the game of caring for and nurturing um, and giving ourselves to to the raising of, of a child. I think what this question brings to mind to me is um, Heidi Newmark, who's a pastor in New York City and a mentor of mine, um, said something like, how can I baptize a baby and name her as this beautiful creation of God mm. whom God has chosen and united to God's own self and then be okay with letting her go to substandard schools or mm. be okay mm. with letting her not have enough food or experience yeah. gender discrimination or all these things so I think that's the mm. when I see babies baptized that are not um, directly related to me or that I don't have a relationship with, I mean, the way that I live out my promise to mm. them is by uh, striving for justice in society and trying to make it so that they will be able to live a flourishing life, mm. you know? I joked with John and Joel and Peter after our conversation that I wanted to just play this episode for every family I'm trying to teach about baptism as a pastor. And I'm kind of serious. I'm so grateful to them for talking about what this sacrament means to them and what it means for the kind of world we get to create together. A world where people know at their core that they are loved and that they belong. A world where we say yes to the things that bring life and justice and equality in this world and no to the things that don't and then work to make the world reflect that. Alter Guild is hosted by Meta Herrick Carlson, Matthew Ian Fleming, Miriam Samuelson Roberts, and Derek Transgard, with edits by Matt and Derek. You can visit our website at alterguild.org, that's A-L-T-E-R, and find us on Twitter and Facebook at slash alterguild. To listen to more episodes or to subscribe, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, 
or wherever else fine podcasts are sold. And if you like what we're doing, please leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening, and be sure to tune in next week for our next episode. And in the meantime, go in peace, listen, love, serve, and alter. <laughs>